You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Sharing the post growth love is my game. Many of us have seen the sobering summaries in the media regarding the latest intergovernmental report on climate change or IPCC. Some of us may have even read the report itself. In essence, the report is so sobering that we've locked the future into inescapable warming and literally stormy weather that even the mainstream media are reporting on this factually. In some ways, it is good to see many of the media outlets come a long way in a short amount of time. After all, this was the same ABC that just two years ago tried to tell me live on national news not to be so doomy because, and I quote, some of us are recycling and I turn on the tap and the water comes out. Therefore, there isn't a water shortage. (laughs) This week, as I quote from Greg Jericho of The Guardian, the problem, of course, is that when you are in a hole, the first thing you have to do is to stop digging, which therein lies the rub. As a collective, industrialised societies are incredibly poor at systems thinking, or to put it bluntly, connecting the dots. Although the ABC has come a long way in identifying there is actually a problem, bless them, there was still the blatant cognitive dissonance in the news in which they reported on the IPCC and that Australia is not doing enough, followed almost immediately by a report that we must get planes up in the air as soon as possible to rescue a lagging economy. No one in the production team seemed to recognise the conflict of interest or even the stark irony. And if this was coming from the ABC, then I shudder to think what the Bolt Report said, probably still hooked on the idea that it's all a ploy by Schrodinger's greenies who are simultaneously taking our jobs while at the same time need to go out and get a job. In the eyes of the seething conservative, the job market must appear as a dazzling quantum field. But of course, climate change is just a gooey tip on the newly melting iceberg. (laughs) Even without climate change, there would still be water, soil, resource and biodiversity collapse under the sheer weight of the ever-expanding human growth story alone. And dare I say that the post-growth movement has a way to go to turn the dreams of localised economies, community sufficiency and frugal abundance into a reality. At a recent talk I gave in Adelaide to Economic Reform Australia, I discussed the challenges of putting theory to practice by my lived experience in various intentional community projects over the past decade. There have been many wins and joys, of course, but also many bumps and potholes along the way. Now, believe it or not, all my pre-ramble there all leads towards the introduction of my, to my next guest. <laughs> Dune Wyborn is a founder of the Bindarabi Intentional Community in an absolutely beautiful and less known part of the world, 100 kilometres northwest of Lismore on the New South Wales and Queensland border and almost completely surrounded by the Kurila National Park. Indeed, back in January, during my road trip up and down the East Coast, I was kindly invited to stay at Bindarabi for a week to sit out the wave of COVID, then lurking about Sydney and Brisbane. I had an absolutely amazing time getting my hands dirty in some projects, meeting the colourful, lovely and welcoming residents, splashing about in the rock pools during some very steamy subtropical days and sharing a yurt with a variety of overgrown reptiles and arachnids. Dune shares with us an amazing legacy. In the 90s, as a geologist, he was instrumental in trying to make geothermal energy a reality for Australia. However, he later saw the shortcomings of a technological utopia when measured against the hard realities of the Jevons paradox within an industrial economic system that presupposes infinite growth on a finite planet. With this realisation, Dune redirected his efforts towards setting up a rural intentional community in a remote area of Australia to which Dune sees as having ideal climate and ideal soils. 
Dune understands the predicaments that we face as we hit the limits of growth and ecological and societal breaking points, and he doesn't hold back during this interview. In fact, his reflections display a rawness and emotion as the interview progresses. This is perhaps not easy listening, but in my opinion, so important to capture. I interviewed Dune at the community during a downpour under a tin roof of a caravan, as this was the only place one could secure internet reception. As such, the rain and the bird call is ever-present throughout the interview. I did consider trying to edit the rain out of the sound, but I do believe the background sound is not only very much part of the Bindarabi atmosphere, but also reflective of our conversation as it was an impulsive decision to do the interview and neither of us were totally prepared. After the interview, I play a track from my band Shock Octopus titled No Easy Way Down. Given the sobering news of the IPCC report and some of the discussions in this interview, I thought it would be quite thematically consistent to play a song that is about climate change from the perspective of a polar bear. Enjoy. Stoked to be sitting here with Dune Wyborn from Bin Darabi Intentional Community Centre. Now, normally I do interviews online. This time I'm actually on site. Dune, uh, where the hell is Bin Darabi? Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. We're in northern New South Wales, inland a little bit from most of the area where uh, these kinds of intentional communities are bound. We're not far from the Queensland border and we're actually in a location that's about two hours southwest of Brisbane and just over the border we're actually surrounded by a national park called Kareela National Park. Bindarabi is a, a freehold titled block of land of about 800 acres or 330 hectares and it's got national park on three sides and a gorge on the other. We were very lucky to be able to obtain this land and get permission from the local Tenterfield Shire Council to do what's called a rural land share community whereby multiple um, houses can be built on the one titled block of land. Fantastic. And I just did want to say that it's currently raining here as we are in uh, northern New South Wales on a rainy year. So our other guest is the rain that will make a background din throughout the interview. I like to call it background ambience. Do tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps what led you to uh, thinking along the lines of intentional communities. My life has been related to spending time away from society in the bush, in the, in the mountains, in the forests, in places around the world where humans have had a relatively minimal impact and that's the kind of uh, place that I've come to love. It started off with my parents being dedicated bushwalkers in the Sydney Bushwalking Club in, in Sydney where I grew up and my time working and uh, ended up becoming a geologist. The reason for that is because I could get out into the countryside away from the city and spend time wandering around looking at things and wondering just uh, why the earth is such a magnificent place. As I got older I became uh, concerned about the fact that, that humanity was destroying th this magnificent place and in the end I decided that uh, living in an intentional community and actually minimizing my impact on the land or actually creating an intentional community whereby we we work towards uh, limiting our resource use and minimizing our desire for consumption was a way that I would would like to um, help with others. Originally I thought I would be doing it just as a family unit 
but uh, a family unit doesn't really work very well in such an environment. It's too hard work and so having um, a small group based on what you might call something smaller than Dunbar's number, which is where humans get to know one another uh, and trust one another and that number is something like what the size of a tribe or a small village might be about 100 to 150 people so that's kind of the size that I was thinking we might be able to um, come together and, and, and live together and work together and create most of our needs together that's the kind of intentional community that I that I strive for during these uh, episodes and series of PGAP, we tried to make the concept of post-growth a kind of visceral day-to-day uh, -day experience, so it's not so academic. It would be great for you to be able to guide me through what happens here as a kind of a comparison. So, for example, you know, if someone was to come in to this intentional community, what would they see? What would they find what would they see going on yes well be probably because of my bias for space and forest and and, and uh, natural lands around me and the people who are working with me on it we decided that we would have areas for housing of around about two acres each so we actually have approval for 21 houses on two acre lots Although they're adjacent to one another, they're spread out enough so that I don't uh, interfere or get interfered with by the, by the neighbour. We could have done it in a kind of a European village style whereby we had approval for 20 ha 21 houses. They could be all together in a little kind of um, close-knit terraced house type place with a, a central court area, courtyard or market centre and then food growing around that but here a quarter of our land is is used for human activities and three quarters of it is is just natural forest which just really blends in with the national parks surrounding us so the 200 acres that we use for human activities consists of of large tracts of, of cleared land that, have, that were cleared for by forestry starting in the 1890s and mostly in around about the second world war time and we're using those cleared lands for um, food growing and water catch catchment the houses are kind of spread around that cleared land so it's a bit of a way for us to walk from one house to another and that is a, a bit of an issue like if we had a central um, village environment we'd be closer together and perhaps more intimately associated with each other but uh, that's the way it grew so we're trying to do communal food growing related to this kind of climatic condition but at the same time we've got enough space for our own gardens our own orchards so I've got a lot of fruit trees on my two acres and my own greenhouse sometimes it's a little difficult to uh, allocate your time between your own needs for your own gardens and the needs of a community garden coming together in um, working bees working at times when the garden needs attention and then we all uh, join each other to do that in the middle of our um, main area for communal activities we have a, a community center which also acts as our bushfire shelter. I must say, when I came into this community, I was really taken by the natural beauty, you know, seeing the uh, combination of eucalyptus and rainforests and these uh, hills and these very steep you know, cliffs um, jutting out of the landscape. Um, what was it about this area, aside from the natural beauty I mean it's not an area of the world that people normally think of you know when you think of intentional community you think of all the ashrams in the, uh, the northern rivers but this is well inland of that I think the closest town is a place called Woodenbong and um, yeah. <laughs> my immediate thought was making a bong out of wood mm. would be a bit counterproductive. Mm. But well we've got plenty of wood to do that. <laughs>
Actually, yeah, I, I have run into people who say that, um, like from here down towards the coast, down towards um, Lismore and Byron Bay, in a, a fairly typical summer, it's way too wet and way too cloudy. You never see the sun for, for weeks on end. The rainfall down towards the coast from here is something like 2,000 millimetres whereas we're more like about 1100 millimetres. But 1100 millimetres is a hell of a lot of rain. It's, and most of it comes in the summertime, quite distinct from um, southern Australia. Uh, that'll be winter rainfall maximum. There are some advantages with both. My understanding is that with climate change, the summer rainfall maximum areas of Australia will actually have increased rainfall and the winter rainfall maximum areas will have decreased rainfall. This is because the pressure belts are moving southwards with, with increasing temperature. And so the southern coal fronts that come through southern Australia are actually being pushed offshore down into the southern ocean. Whereas the summer um, subtropical and tropical conditions are actually moving down into Australia more. So for example, Alice Springs is now becoming subtropical because of of um, climate change. That's one of the things that attracted me to the east coast of Australia, but not too wet. And then as you go too far north, not only is it too wet, it's too hot, and it's also likely to, to be hit by cyclones. Like northern New South Wales is definitely one of the places to be in terms of living if you want to grow your own food. But if it's too hot and too wet, you want to come inland a little bit, and for me, too hot is not a good thing. So a little bit of elevation is good too. So uh, we're about 580 metres above sea level here. And we have mountains that go up to 1100 metres above sea level uh, behind us. And those mountains are all clothed in rainforest. We're in a volcanic area. So there are volcanic peaks around us. All in all, the, uh, the natural environment here is just amazing. It's, it's really beautiful. And, and not only that, the volcanic uh, rocks provide good quality soils that, are, that we can grow lots of things with. Yes, and the other thing is, despite the fact that you're inland, there are no shortage of places to swim. Like, uh, you've taken me to at least three swimming places now, <laughs> all the are more stunning than the other. So, you know, you don't have to be on the ocean. Um, so long as you've got, you know, running water and great watering holes. Um, I remember people in the community were talking about winter frost here and that really um, confused me because I thought, you know, you're on the border of Queensland. Um, mm. I thought frost didn't exist anymore. I've said on previous episodes of PGAP that intentional communities are a great idea and I think people love the idea of intentional communities but they're not for uh, everyone. In fact, some of the house share intentional communities experiences and um, other intentional communities I've been in in the past, uh, you know, people come in with utopian ideals, but at the end of the day, often sometimes find that uh, just not getting along with everyone <laughs> gets in the way. So um, I'm kind of interested in you know, the successes of this place, but also the challenges and perhaps how an intentional community like this addresses um, interpersonal conflicts and manages to find a consensual way to unify ideas. We've spent a lot of time working on our constitution for our, our land. We, the land is actually owned by a company and when you uh, buy in, you buy a share in the company and there are basically 21 shares, although they're divided into sub-shares, in order to uh, kind of make sure that the type of people that come here uh, recognise the, the way we want to live. The constitution is actually very strong in pointing out that we're trying to be a permaculture community, we're, we're trying to work together communally and we have the ability through the constitution to um, actually remove people from the community if it could be based on perhaps um, drugs or crime or something like that. And it is difficult and in fact up until now in 2021 
people have come here with those utopian ideas and recognised what hard work it is. They've recognised that there's hard physical work, it's difficult to uh, get along with other people. We do have communication agreements and um, using non-violent communication, a, a method of people trying to develop, or, or at least if there's a, a problem between two people that they try and come to an agreement for themselves and then only after that bring it to the whole community if, if there's an issue rather than then spread to other individuals. So if two people can't work out a problem then it has to come to the whole community. Up until now quite a few people have, have looked like they wanted to come here but upon reflection and upon spending time here they've given up. Uh, they found it too hard because of the physical work involved and also the, the amount of effort that's needed to actually create something that's comfortable for them to live in. And, and that in its own right is, is difficult for those who are here because they're continually balancing their time between community and building their own house and making their own sort of comfortable and, and workable. That is a definite, definitely a difficulty. But I think um, not only given the coronavirus um, outbreak that's, that's inflicted upon us at the moment, but also the fact that sort of Western civilization and capitalism has been straining at this point in time, even before coronavirus, that more and more people are recognizing that the way, their way of life in the city living in a in rural land and being resilient and minimizing our use of materials that have come from technology even though we do need those materials is something that that they're they're willing to give it a go and i think we've got quite a good group of people here so far we're only about halfway in terms of our, our uh, number of shares sold so there's uh, opportunities for others to, to come here um, if they think this is the kind of life for them and uh, we'd welcome anybody who uh, to, to get in contact with us and, and welcome you to come and stay with us and have a lovely camping ground with um, quite good basic facilities including you know, water supply and solar electricity running re refrigeration and, and composting toilets and generally well set up for minimal use of, of materials from out in the big bad world. So there we go. If you like the idea of this place so far, <laughs> um, I will provide a link at the episode. So if this sounds like you, do say hello. Um, it's quite spread out here, so there is some driving and there's some technology. Hopefully the other half of the lots will be sold in the future, which will mean, you know, a little bit more modulation of the land and perhaps you know some cutting down of trees and things like that um, but what are the advantages from a carbon consumption lifestyle perspective of uh, living in an intentional community compared with trying to live in a green tech high-rise or medium density space in a city because I know like a lot of in environmentalists and I suppose sustainable town planners are kind of telling us that kind of green tech high-rise is the answer to most of our problems if not all of them. Yeah the real issue is um, energy consumption. The issue of energy consumption is something that I've followed uh, for a long while and in fact um, the green tech solution is not something that, that is viable in the future. The idea of a, a Green New Deal is just not possible. For us to replace the fossil fuel industry with, a, with, a, with solar panels and wind farms and electricity run cars would basically mean that we have to double our fossil fuel consumption just to create it. Climate change is just not going to allow that. On top of that, in fact, we don't have any high net energy, apart from coal, 
we don't have any high net energy oil available now in the world. We're, we're past the peak of oil and it's the oil industry that I've spent a lot of time following for decades. Uh, people may not realize, but up until uh, about October last year, the US was the world's largest oil producer. And the reason they have been is because they've been producing oil from shale. And it's oil that is just um, not economically viable. The, oil, the shale oil companies were, before coronavirus, were starting to um, go bankrupt. And the US has, has now lost a lot of its production and it's not going to be supported by lies and by printing of money in the future. Suddenly the US, the world's largest oil producer as of October last year, will be dragged down and, and drag the rest of the world with it. We basically have to reduce our energy consumption by a huge amount. Um, some people say a, a typical Westerner living in a suburban house would have to reduce his or her consumption by 90%. So from um, 20 kilowatt hours of electricity a day to, to 2 kilowatt hours of electricity a day. And that's, that's very difficult. So what that means is that Western civilization is, is, is on a collapsed path. And the reason is because there is not energy available to continue the way we are. So then we look at growing food, shelter, and how do we actually support population that's that we have to support as best we can without um, major suffering and I'm afraid it's going back to a rural environment not necessarily a rural environment like us but but certainly small rural towns that that are in an area where where they can grow their own food the basic political unit that will come out of this in the end with this collapse that's beginning will be a sort of a bioregion where one particular region has the right kind of climate and soils to grow particular uh, variety of, of foods, become specialists in manufacturing something that's useful for growing food, and they will be trading with adjacent bioregions, but not much further than that. We've got a, a certain amount of stock of materials from the capitalist system, and that stock of materials will be running down over time. So like maybe solar panels or polypipe for water distribution. Eventually these materials are not going to become available. So we need to actually maximize our efforts in sorting out how to use these materials for the benefit of everyone. And being in the city and having food built, uh, grown and distributed ultimately it's not going to be easy so i think that the idea of a, a green high-rise apartment where where people are going to be living and bringing that food in from somewhere else where we don't have fossil fuels to either grow it or transport it it's not going to happen we have to learn to actually go back to human labor and that means you know not not having diesel powered tractors essentially the food the industrial food that we consume now is really just fossil fuel based. Soil is just a, a kind of an intermediary from taking fossil fuel out of the ground, applying it in a way that the plants start to grow, or in some cases animals uh, consume, and then that ends up in your um, house where you consume it. So if you take those fossil fuels away, then the whole world has to um, start all over again in some new method and um, one of the ways that we can do that is to go out onto the land and learn how to grow things in a way that, that minimizes our use of fossil fuels. Four questions have come yeah, from that. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of... <laughs> now, um, the first thing is, um, I believe you have some renown or at least a few interviews on ABC in the past uh, due to your Please paraphrase me here, I probably got it wrong, but you were working in geothermals for a while and then uh, walked away from it, saying it was non-viable. So this may link into the energy descent thing, but did you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, for two decades of my life, I believe that, that um, the techno-utopia could come from 
things like solar panels and wind farms and in my uh, case my expertise in geology made me turn to uh, an understanding about getting heat out of the ground and using that heat to to uh, provide our energy source I was able to convince quite a lot of people that this may be a viable option for continuing our consumptive lifestyle and then when Jevon's paradox sort of intervened um, meaning that uh, no matter how much you um, create you'll just consume more to to utilize it and therefore everything else is going to run down even if you did have an infinite amount of energy my 20 years of research into geothermal from about 1990 to 2010 came to an end uh, and that's a, a, a major story in its own right but it nevertheless it did come to an end and, and um, the idea of energy descent um, living in a way that actually reduces our consumption uh, became a, a predominant ideal that I, that I strove for and then still do. Um, do you have any regrets for losing a couple of decades or do you value uh, <laughs> that at least you know you came to that uh, realization in your lifetime when so many people haven't or well it was an exciting time and I and also I was able to continue to make a bit of money while I was doing it which was able to be utilized in 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 getting this land going in in the way I thought you know under the new paradigm I don't, I don't regret it I would like would have liked to have started this intentional community type activity perhaps two decades earlier so I did yeah. miss that out but there's always a time for something and in 1990 it was the time for developing a geothermal program in Australia and in 2010 it was probably a bit early for actually um, uh, intentional communities to, to take off. I think now is probably the time when a lot of people are going to go back to the land. Over the last 10 years it's been hard to get people interested in doing it because they've always say this is this is too hard I'm going to go back to the city and get a get a job and somehow I'm going to survive there. Well that option is not going to be available to many people in the future. So a lot of people are going to say, although it's hard, it's my only option. And I think one thing that's come out of the pandemic is um, a lot of people living in Melbourne City, Brisbane, the capital cities, uh, have all gone, you know what, uh, we don't want a third wave in the capital city. You, you, you know, we've missed out on the trees and the nature and the, the open space. Um, in, indeed, that's that's where I've come to, you know, if there is a third wave, I don't want to be in rows of apartments and upturned concrete and um, regimented lines and roads, you know, I actually want to be able to stretch my arms and to be able to see foliage of the ocean or at least some open space. So Bindarabi has been around for uh, a, 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 around a decade perish the thought if collapse happened tomorrow which we know it never will because we know we can always grow in a <laughs> finite planet infinitely so long as we've got capital and substitution but you know in an hypothetical if collapse did happen tomorrow is there enough of a closed loop system uh here at the moment um to be able to ride it out or would there be problems or challenges well, actually, collapse is already happening. It's what? just that it's that it's um, it's it's slow for people to realise it, and and it's inevitable. And um, the real issue is how do we manage it in a way that's um, least damaging to people's lives across the planet. We would struggle with collapse happening tomorrow, but we would ride it out because we, we've got knowledge, we've got people with, with knowledge of how to grow things, we've got some infrastructure, we've got a lot of good infrastructure, particularly for water. We've got um, spring-fed water and we've got eight dams on the property. Uh, all those dams are full at the moment, although they're pretty empty in the 2019 drought. 
uh, but some of them were only just put in so needed some rain to fill them up but we've got a lot we've got solar powered pumps we've got um, gravity feeding of water supply from high up to, to low down we are using diesel power for um, collecting mulch and for making gardens but we know that if the if the collapse happened we wouldn't have that diesel power and we'd have to use human labor um, but we'd, we'd be able to do it and we'd be able to provide all of our own food without any trouble at all we've got miles more land than we need to do that but more importantly we've got um, a catchment where we can collect water that allows us to, to grow that food even in 2019 was was the um, the driest year on record here in 140 years of, of uh, rainfall measurements but it wasn't caused by climate change there are many many other years that are almost as bad in the early 1900s this year is more like um, or this summer rather is is more like what climate change will do to this kind of land with with more rain more cloud the variability uh, may well increase with climate change and certainly the temperatures are increasing like it's hotter now there's no doubt about that but um, but the rainfall and the, and the water availability should become better here rather than worse we'll ride out the collapse beautifully compared to like there's no way I would want to be in a city in the in the future it's not going to be very pretty at all <laughs> um, now you mentioned the words population and consumption um, within this interview it's funny I, I remember having a heated debate which I think was an argument because I haven't <laughs> he's never talked to me since <laughs> um, you know whether population was an issue and no, he said no 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 it's just consumption um, for example we can all just use compostable toilets so there are plenty of compostable toilets here so if 8 billion people in the world heading towards um, 10.8 I think by the end of 2100 people project it to 10.8 but it's never going to get there <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the m meantime Australia um, would love to grow up the size of a new Canberra each year through its economic migration uh, <laughs> policy though COVID's put that on check so look if everyone in the world um, came here or equivalents and used compostable toilets uh, is it only consumption never population that's an issue well this is this is a, a very um, vexed question that, that a lot of people don't like answering um, as I know firsthand yeah, yeah. as you would yeah the, uh, there's no doubt that the human population is way way too high for um, uh, sustainable ecosystems to flourish um, in the future some people say well there was a study and I can't remember the authors just recently where they said that um, somewhere between one to two billion is a sustainable population of humans on the earth but they said because of our um, brains and technology we might be able to get to three billion but now we're nearly eight billion and and the, and the problem that is how do we get from eight billion to let's say a, a generous three billion uh, with with the least human suffering and at the same time reduce our energy consumption by 90 percent we basically have to go back to human labor and so people are going to have to learn to um to be involved in in growing food that's that's going to be the basic main activity of nearly everyone at the moment farmers are around about 0.5% uh, of the population it'll probably go back up to at least 50% and of course I'm not really um, I've not kept up with methods I, I know that as Western societies develop and um, the number of children that are had and, and the, it gets to a point where population starts to decrease in in the in the most highly developed countries like the Scandinavia and Japan and 
maybe Italy as well, but their populations are decreasing so slowly that, it, that, that that's not a viable way of, of reducing our population. And also, a lot of, like Japan was at 127 million people, I think, before yeah. the population declined. The Netherlands couldn't, although the population stabilising now, they couldn't fit all those people into the country yeah. without reclaiming half of half the land area of their country from the, from the ocean. So I think the challenge is for a, a lot of countries in the global south, they're going on the population trajectory that us in Western countries have done, but the trick is to bring family planning and empowerment of women and you know a sensible consideration of family size numbers that people yeah. can choose rather than you know the patriarchal religion um, before they reach overcapacity like um, a lot of the western countries already have it, it's it's a predic predicament that um that is not going to be solved easily and it's it's only going to get worse uh, I like to think of Bindarabi as just really as, a, as a, an example demonstration of the microcosm of the whole earth in that we need to learn to get on with one another, to um, recognise the, the scale of human use of the land and the rest of the land is run by nature effectively. So if you look at that, like even one to two billion people is effectively saying that humans are going to be um, running most of the viable land for food for themselves and forgetting all of the other creatures that are that actually have just as much right to um, to live on earth as we have so you know, humans have got themselves into a point where there, there's no way out but to um, well there's, there is just no way out and I and I, you know, I'm really, it, it depresses me that, that that's the case. And I can say that I've done my best to, um, to become a demonstrator of the least dangerous way out. And I'll have to leave it up to my children and grandchildren to, um, to, to carry on something similar. Yes, uh, this is a problem when uh, we don't have ignorance as bliss anymore and you know we can see obliteration and things unraveling right before our eyes um what 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 do you do and i think you encapsulated that well that um if, if you'd allow me to paraphrase we're dealing something that well is bigger than big her like infinite growth is <laughs> pre pre pretty big um so all we can do is make the best microcosms that we can within our sphere of influence because ultimately there's whatever that may look like you know intentional communities may not be for everyone but they are for some and uh, i suppose uh, whatever we can do to break out of the matrix in the economic system probably the best thing that humans can do now is is to do nothing anyone who says oh, i'm going to get out there and i'm going to do this to make things better is only going to make things worse when when you do nothing and you find that you start to get hungry then you start from scratch and you say well maybe i better plant a few little plants and um and i'll i'll start to eat them but uh yeah infinite growth it, it's just the most ridiculous um concept well, we've, we've gotten ourselves to the point where uh, that concept is, um, is clearly being understood or the, the, the concept not being correct has been understood by more and more people. The limits to growth model for population actually had in the, from the 1970s that, that we would um, uh, reach maximum population in about 2030 and that that and the population would would crash after that and the reason population would crash was not because of decreased birth rates but actually increased death rates and in fact birth rates are still rising in in their model whereas death rates rise enormously and um 
and so we can all see where that's coming from. Mm. When you said do nothing, it reminds me of an Alan Watts video that I saw, you know, that we keep doing and doing and doing and maybe doing nothing <laughs> was the answer all along. You know, apart from the hard work and in an intentional community, that's allowed. But <laughs> you don't want too many people here yeah, saying well, I'm doing nothing today. But yeah, well, we're developing our intentional community, which is obviously not doing nothing. We're, we're actually progressing our intentional community which is kind of not doing nothing but um, you know we're still want our own comforts we're still used to um, living fairly uh, nicely with with electricity and being able to um, put food in the refrigerator and keep it for a while but uh, we also have in mind all the time that um, if these things are not available like we have inverters to run our solar panels into 240 volts. If those inverters weren't there, and if batteries, when the batteries die, we no longer have a way of storing it. We'll have to run our solar panels uh, directly to um, a refrigerator that only switches on when the sun's on, because the batteries died and the inverters died, and uh, we, we can't get new ones. And, and, and eventually our solar panels will die too. I don't know how people are going to um, work out how to do that. Uh, hopefully we will retain a knowledge of technologies that are going to support the entire human species, well, sorry, the entire human population, rather than just to the benefit of the rich. Yeah, there may well be solar panel factories in every little bioregion. And of course there's the mining of the materials. The long term, to me, I just cannot see where we're going. I think we, we will be going back to a, a kind of a dark ages with a better understanding of some technologies to support us in those times. Well look, thank you so much, Dean. We're uh, coming to the end there. Um, but um, thank you for <laughs> brought me through the practical landscape, a philosophical landscape, and also, you know, some emotional heavy stuff there as well. But uh, in the meantime, um, on a positive note, if there's any um, young, strong listener there who loves farming and uh, heavy labour, who wants to find out more about uh, Bindarabi, uh, where can they go and who can they talk to? And Well, uh, Bindarabi, B-I-N-D-A-R-R-A-B-I, has both a Facebook page and a web page, so you can very easily search on that term. Bindarabi is, actually comes from two Aboriginal words, um, Binda, which means um, deep pool, which we have down in the gorge down below our land, in the on, in the uh, in, in the lowest parts of our land, deep pools, the swimming pools, and and Narrabri, which means high mountain, and so we've combined deep pool and high mountain together to form a word that um, that more or less epitomises um, the landscape here, uh, deep pools and high mountains and eucalypt forest and rainforests and and creeks and waterfalls in between perfect name for a lovely inspiring place thank you so much Dean. thank you michael lovely to be with you Falling Ho
just heard the track No Easy Way Down from my own band Shock Octopus. Before then, I talked with Dune Wyborn from Bindarabi Intentional Community. A big thank you to Sustainable Population Australia for supporting this podcast. I would also like to thank all the residents of the Bindarabi community for being so welcoming and supportive of my six or seven days there. I remember every night being a communal dinner get-together and I had a more of a regular social life there than I had in years. <laughs> Speaking of Shock Octopus, No Easy Way Down was released as a fundraiser single last year to raise funds for Extinction Rebellion. I've always been a better musician than protester after all. Incidentally, Shock Octopus have also released a best-of retrospective called Into the Darkness, The Best of Shock Octopus. Back when we started in 2010, we were writing music about environmental and social collapse before the rest of the world cottoned on that it was a thing, and so I often got accused of being unnecessarily apocalyptic in my lyrics. These days, many of these same people are writing on their Facebook walls, Oh no, the world is ending, why didn't anyone tell me? And I just purse my lips and feel smug inside. I was actually interviewed on Radio Adelaide recently for over two hours to talk about my music. If you just can't get enough of my dulcet tones serenading you about post-growth and you're curious about how I can monologue on about my music for 120 minutes plus, I'll provide the links in the description. Hang around for next episode when I share some excellent interviews with movers and shakers during my stint in Adelaide. While you're waiting, please rate and review PGAP on your favourite platform. We have 11 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts now, which is just lovely. Until then, until then.